Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Beardju, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. So Beardju, let's start um, from the beginning. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Where were you originally born and raised? Sure, sure. Before I get started, I'd just like to say thank you for having me here. I'm, I'm inspired by your work, so I consider it a blessing. Thank you. Uh, my own background, I'm, uh, I'm Indian by descent. Uh, both my parents were brought up in the part of India around which Gandhi did the bulk of his work in Northwest India. And I myself grew up in the States, um, but I felt in many ways a, a subtle undercurrent of Gandhian values pervading through. And at a certain point in life, it, it just became hard to ignore. And so I just have been trying to follow it and integrate my values more over time. And so when did you first have this inkling that there was something else going on in terms of mindfulness or just um, sort of a different world than maybe what we see on a day-to-day -day basis? When did you start to have that awareness? Uh, I, I was originally exposed to it as a teenager. So I grew up in, uh, in a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona, uh, much more exposed to the conventional paradigm of what success is through material acquisition and consumption. And uh, didn't feel particularly good about it, but you didn't know there was another option. Uh, came across some writings of esoteric philosophers around 15, people like Yogananda or J. Krishnamurti. You know, and as a teenager, when people talk about walking through walls and being in two places at once, uh, it, it is uh, definitely something that catches attention, and they don't even mean it as a joke. So uh, I became quite interested for that reason and started to tell people at school about it. They thought I was crazy uh, and subsequently just dove deeper in. I, I became this weird kid who would come home and read philosophy and try my own understanding of what meditation was, for better or worse. And over time, I, I think the, uh, the rationale behind it started to clarify and deepen. But what, what started was this. You know, it's funny, I saw your background that you went to Arizona State University. Do you think you were the most mindful person at Arizona State? <laughs> you know, I looked up at my, my graduating class. I saw there was something like 14,000 people that graduated with me. This is a large school. So I would not jump to that conclusion. I, I have been quite moved subsequently by seeing some of the avant-garde work there. Um, but the underlying current that I've been tapping into is this, this approach is not as rare or new age or off the beaten path as I may have believed it to be. It's one of those things where as I turn my radar to a specific topic, lo and behold, I find that that topic's just waiting to hit me in the face. I, I just wasn't looking for it. And so you and I have both done the famous 10-day Vipassana retreats with Essen Goenka. Can you talk a little bit about, to tell folks who don't know what that is first, what it is, and then how did you first hear about it and decide to do your first course? Sure, sure. So uh, Essen Goenka is a meditation teacher, in effect. He's been involved in teaching a specific form of meditation, of which there's many types. I think the word meditation is somewhat imprecise due to the English language. You close your eyes and anything you do is called meditation now. Uh, he taught a specific form that uh, he would say has been passed down by Buddha. Uh, and uh, over time, he started expanding it and saying, look, you know, it used to be that if you wanted to learn this kind of meditation, you have to ordain and become a monk. Um, and then he started saying, well, actually, what if we started teaching it to regular folks? And what if we made it compressed in terms of scheduling. 
So the, the shortest that they came up with was a 10-day program where, in effect, you're meditating for the bulk of that, which sounds pretty intense. But when you hear that it used to be 80 days or lifelong, they've cut it down quite a bit. And uh, I originally came across this, this way of uh, teaching a little over a decade ago. I started volunteering with a group based out of the Bay Area here um, that was focused on uh, values that I felt very resonant with, you know, generosity, compassion, gratitude, mindfulness. And as I dove into it, I was like, oh, I'm into mindfulness. I do this meditation stuff that I read about in a book. And I had a few friends that said, well, are you interested in learning about it more from an experiential standpoint and, and also having some, um, some tenets that you can tie yourself to, at least as you get started. I found that to be intriguing. I also found the manner of this particular school of training intriguing. Uh, the whole thing is offered in effect in the spirit of gift culture. So you, uh, there's no price tag to go. You're fed there, housed there for 10 days, and there's no price tag. And at the end, there's still no price tag, uh, but you can donate. Uh, you're not even allowed to donate before you get there. So that I found to be very intriguing, especially coming from a more traditional business background. I found all of these things to just pull me in. And, and over time, I would tell you that I, I'm not saying that the Goenka way is the right way, the only way. It's, it's probably one of my gateways into a world that I find to be amazing. And yeah, did you... Um, was meditation and mindfulness, you know, kind of going back through your, through your past work experience, when did, when did you start, what years do you think you first started to become aware? Um, and you know, was that correlated with a particular job you had or how did that piece reflect in your work, work life? So, so I want to make sure I'm hearing you right here, Ryan. So the question is about integration of, of, you know, that work part of my life with this, call it the interior. Is that right? Yeah. So maybe more specifically it would be um, I noticed you worked at McKinsey. And so uh, for me, it's interesting to think of someone who's 15 reading philosophical texts about Krishnamurti and uh, Yogananda to working in sort of the sort of very traditional industrialized consulting firm. So maybe you could help me reconcile. How, how did that work for you? Fair enough. So, so what I didn't have was the link that connects the two. So I had just assumed that this part of me that was a developing personal interior that didn't seem to match what I saw outside of me was not acceptable in the broader society. And I still needed to pay for you know, my sustenance. I'm coming from a first generation immigrant family. You know, I, didn't, I didn't feel like I had much ground to stand on to, to force myself into something else. And so I continued on. I, I uh, finished my degree, ended up getting my master's, um, found this job with the consulting firm. And all throughout, just wanting to deepen this other part of my life. So I was volunteering on nights and weekends and having this regular meditation practice. And uh, luckily, building relationships with people who invited me into these small changes. You know, the, what is now being studied at Stanford and beyond, how uh, tiny habits can change our neurology over time. And without knowing it, that's in effect what I was doing, where I would go into the workplace. I have a, I have a friend who made this beautiful comment that... Um, when, when he shows up at work, he says, my job is showing up to the meeting and listening and providing substantive feedback, et cetera. My work is being in the meeting, looking at somebody who seems hungry because they haven't had lunch, going, pulling out an apple, cutting it up, putting some peanut butter on it, handing it to him while the meeting's going on. That is the stuff that's beneath the surface that allows me to step into my higher purpose and calling of being a person who stands for giving generosity, compassion, kindness, gratitude. Those elements to me could be practiced regardless of circumstance. So I took a, 
a, uh, a personal challenge on myself of uh, while I was at McKinsey, uh, every day that I was in the office, I had a personal homework assignment of dropping a cupcake on somebody's desk who uh, wasn't there at the time. Now, it's been 10 years, so I, I hope that it's okay to let that cat out of the bag. But the reason that that felt so alive to me is because when I went home, I felt more purposefulness and I could grow that over time. It wasn't like that was it. Every day I have a chance to do a little bit more, a little bit more. At some point, it got to a space where uh, there were opportunities coming up for me to grow in practice that were no longer at McKinsey. And, and it felt very much in the flow to shift out of that instead of holding this, this existential crisis inside of myself of, oh, you know, my values are to be helpful, but here I am working for, at the time, you know, big finance in 2008 on Wall Street for McKinsey. And what am I doing, you know, destroying the world despite my value? Like, none of that. It was about small steps a bit at a time until the ground that I was standing on dissolved. Nice. I like that. The, 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 the secret distributor of cupcakes at McKinsey is revealed. Right? <laughs> well, it turned out one day I received a cupcake and that really blew my mind. <laughs> So what are you up to currently? You know, I, <clears throat> I, uh, in the, in the introduction, you know, you have several job titles. So, uh, how, how, how is your time distributed in a given week? You know, are, and what are you currently doing with your, with your work? This is historically a challenging question for me to speak to. Um, what I'll say is more of a meta answer to that, uh, which is that I have been focused for many years on developing relationships with people who have a similar longing to walk a path of whole person development in the workplace. Uh, over time, that's led to relationships being built with different organizations and different questions as to how do you do that? That's a pretty expansive mandate. It's not just triple bottom line. You know, several years ago, that was the buzzword. Um, you know, we're, we're moving past the idea of tangible metrics, moving past certainly the idea of how many trees did you plant, which is of course important, but a piece of this larger thing that we're becoming more and more aware of, but not necessarily able to grasp using the same approaches that we used to, whether that's uh, you know, traditional bottom line thinking or even linear thinking, or even thinking about the way we operate our business. And you and I have spoken about this before. Um, there are people who've been studying this of how organizations, the fabric of organization, is evolving as people start to realize that if I am trying to address an ecological crisis, for instance, using a hierarchical organizational system, I'm going to create blind spots for myself because in a hierarchy, the guy at the top makes the decisions but doesn't see all of the, the variables. And so over time, I create the conditions for me to sabotage my highest intentions and purposes. Well, how do I get around that? Uh, I have to evolve personally. Uh, I have to shift my neurology, if you will, and I have to evolve collectively in terms of the structures that I'm a part of, whether that's family, community, organization, or larger. And so I'm very interested in how to, to engage on that kind of work. Um, I happen to have certain titles with different organizations. My background is in finance. I'll work with a couple of financial organizations. But in effect, the crux of the work is, is about inviting that kind of transformation in a variety of ways. I feel blessed that I have uh, skill sets that kind of go across different domains. And so on one hand, sometimes I can engage in culture work and in other times I can engage in financial analysis. But what the work is, is somewhat secondary to why and how. That's that, a good, that was a good, good? answer. Yeah, okay. you've, you've worked on it. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. So maybe, um, so 
let's take Armonia, where you're a volunteer slash managing director. Um, you may be the only volunteer slash managing director at any private equity firm, by the way. I love it. It's great to volunteer at, a, at, at for-profit institutions. Yes. <laughs> People look at you funny. I'm not even sure it's legal. <laughs> but um, so if, with Armonia, for example, can you give us a, a, an example of a project or something that you've helped bring this sort of uh, this nexus of mindfulness and finance and social good into uh, something tangible that perhaps the listeners could, could learn more about your work? Sure, sure. There lots of different ways it plays out. So I'll again, I'll just share a meta example. The linear thinking that leads to saying a cause leads to B effect is part of what we're trying to play around with and see if, if that's um, something that we can transcend. And so if I, uh, if I decide to grow my garden organically, I can point to one particular effect, but really I'm, I'm seeding an ecology. So a lot of things are gonna be different and it's hard to call all of them out in a linear sort of way. That being said, uh, several years ago, I'm really interested in this kind of inner development work and so I, I wanna be talking about it, but I'm finding in the workplace, even though I work for an impact investing firm, there isn't a lot of spaciousness for these kinds of dialogues because we don't really know where it fits in. There hasn't really been much naming of interior work as part of what it means to work in impact investing. And so I invite in this idea of a minute of silence before meetings. And originally that's uh, not necessarily seen as an appropriate use of time, um, but as time goes on, there's more and more openness. And, and in fact, people start to see, oh, our, uh, the, you know, depending on the metric that you choose to follow, our efficiency grows. Uh, if we take one minute out, the remaining 59 minutes actually go way smoother. And we don't really know why, but it seems to happen. And so how do we invite this more deeply into our process, come up with new ways of doing it? Um, the next step that we decided to try out, well, if we do one minute of silence in this way at this time, what if we came up with a way to make it a regular practice? And so uh, one of the projects that, that I'm also involved with is a platform that uh, gets groups together to do 21-day challenges on mindfulness, on gratitude, on kindness. So we did a 21-day mindfulness practice at Harmonia. And so that's going on for a period of time. Everyone finds it to be fascinating, the kinds of stories that come out of it. Um, you know, people are, are finding themselves uh, being in a space of less scarcity in their life, deepening relationships. And once a week we get together and share stories of how that's actually happening so that we can build off of it. It's like a snowball. Time goes on, uh, people come by to the organization. Obviously it's a, it's an investment organization, at least in, in part. Um, and, and one of these folks is looking for, uh, a, a loan. And so we set up this loan, which uh, is the first I've ever heard of. We're calling it a trust based loan. So in effect, it's like a gentleman's agreement. Um, and there's a few pieces to it that make it stand out. One of which is uh, because we agree to engage with this loan, uh, both organizations agree to take on 21 day practices of kindness. So we both get a chance to, to shift our neurology, which is hard to measure and metricize, and, you know, but it does create a ripple effect in the world. Uh, second covenant that we added in was we're going to have uh, interest, standard interest, but the interest is not going to be paid to the lender. It'll be paid to a nonprofit and the borrower will choose who the nonprofit is. So we now start bringing other entities into the table. We start building broader pies of real wealth, as I'd like to call it. A third covenant we put in is uh, once we, we do that relationship with the nonprofit, um, it's not enough just to give them money. We have to engage with them somehow. And so we are all agreeing that we're going to deepen in relationship with somebody who's doing work in a more unconditional way. 
Uh, as an example, I can go on about this, but you, know, you do this over time and you start building different kinds of relationships with organizations. Armonia's thesis and strategy over time has evolved significantly because of thinking in this way. Uh, originally, the, the thesis was around impact investing is about lifting all boats and economic development for the third world. You know, things like healthcare for those in poverty, which is great and very important. And simultaneously, uh, we seem to be depleting our natural stock of wealth, whether that's community, ecology, etc. So what can we be doing using capital of various forms to regenerate that? Th these kinds of questions have come up because of these very small uh, interventions from my standpoint. But I think it's very hard and, and I think dangerous to do cause and effect very clearly between these two. Is that helpful? That's, that's very helpful. Um, <clears throat> could you take a, a similar analogy to, to a project or something you've been working on at RSF, social finance? Is there a, a similar nexus point or example you could give of something you've been doing? Hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll give one that's, that's transcendent of myself because I think as time goes on, these organizations are all embodying these processes themselves. Um, I don't think I'm the first person to come across this. It's existed for some time, but over time, the explicit nature of speaking to it has grown, right? As we've, as RSF has started to see, uh, you know, big banks, bulge bracket banks or whatever you want to call them, are now having their own impact investment groups. Uh, RSF is looking at that phenomenon and saying, um, wait a second, the kind of impact that we're talking about is not the same as this. There's a nuance. And how do we start bringing that to the forefront? One of the big differentiators from my understanding is one of the, Key elements of RSF is spirit. RSF stands for Rudolf Steiner Foundation. Steiner was a well-known Austrian philosopher of the 20th century. And some of the things that he would talk about is how people can engage with each other in the realm of economics such that it is nourishing and, and supporting of spirit-based growth. So for example, um, RSF has a gathering where they'll put together people of, of uh, the same area of work if you will, like whether it's food, agriculture, arts, uh, sit them down together and say, okay, here's a pot of money. Uh, but instead of us making the decision in a kind of top-down way of who's going to get what and why based on our view of reality, you're going to decide that. Uh, the program is called Shared Gifting, and they've been running it for, for several years now. And the idea behind it is there is a lot more wealth to be garnered than just the financial and the way that we can unlock that is by inviting relationship. So you've got these 15 people who are sitting in a room, and at the end of the day, they've got to decide how is that money supposed to be allocated. But inevitably, the kind of answers and solutions that we hear start moving beyond, oh, you know, organization X is going to get 50K and Y will get 20K. And it's more like organization X will get 50K and my brother who's a filmmaker is going to show up and make a video about this. And we're going to put it up on a channel and organization W is going to be sharing that video so that we can get massive reach and see how we can multiply this pot in ways that are very difficult to do when you just think in a more linear kind of way. So these kinds of programs to me bring me alive and also invite me into thinking, okay, what else can we do? How deeper can we go with the idea that ripple effects uh, are very powerful, not necessarily linear, but it depends. It, it demands us to be thinking in ways that are radically different than at least what I've been taught from my past. That uh, collective decision-making is fascinating. And um, do you find that simply the act of putting people in a room together and making them decide that? Or, you know, what are some of the elements that we could take that 
instead of it being 15 people uh, with just, you know, maybe 10 grand, or I'm not sure how much money is given out, but how do you make that a, sort of a larger scale so that, uh, you know, that ethos where there's it's more than financial or social capital and, and other forms of capital come into play? Mm. So um, I, I'll, I'll invite the phrase ripple as a, as a substitute or as, as akin to scale, because I think the, um, for me at least, there's a myopia that comes into play when I consider the world from a lens of scaling. Uh, all of a sudden, things that don't uh, utilize traditional forms of blowing up become less interesting. So uh, the downside of that for me is we start paying less attention to things that are less easy to measure. Uh, for instance, that circle where people come together and start to dialogue, uh, we don't just end up with the, the dispersal of funds the way it is by accident. There are some protocols that are used. Uh, we, we call it circle technology, for instance. So uh, when you have a group together, it just so happens, uh, indigenous wisdom has shown us, and I've seen personally in my own life, if we start with a period of silence, if we have some ground rules where everyone gets to check in and talk about how they are today because they're human beings first and professionals second, if uh, we have space for people to be able to speak to their grievances or their difficulties and allow for the group to dissolve those difficulties over time, the kinds of solutions that come up are wildly creative, wildly powerful, but not easily scalable because it takes a lot of time to do that kind of work. However, even though it may not be scalable, right, I can't, if, if I get a 10-person circle, uh, I can't say, well, this is great, now let me just get a 1,000-person circle. But it turns out nature doesn't necessarily work that way either. The way nature seems to work, as I understand it in my remedial understanding, is if a 10-person circle works, how can we set up a 1,000 10-person circles? And that's the kind of architecture and dynamics that most of the organizations that I'm involved with are asking. You know, can we leverage the wisdom of nature to start to invite ripple effects with the kind of work that we're doing. I love the word ripple. We've been at Lyft Economy, we've been sort of struggling with uh, the terminology of <clears throat> you want social impact to scale, but you also don't want to use the word scale because it it, uh, it creates the wrong uh, mindset and terminology. So I like ripples. Maybe we'll maybe we'll take that from you. <laughs> Please do. It's it's not copyrighted. Yeah. Um, what are you most excited about right now? Um, do you care if I answer it personally or professionally? Nope. I, I don't. I tend to notice less of a difference between the two, anyways. So, what I'm most excited about at this stage of life is uh, delving into uh, personal psychological work and group psychological work. So, one of my insights that I've noticed over my years of of working in this world with an intention of wanting to do good. Um, I've worked in impact. I've worked in philanthropy. I've worked in di different forms of how does money intersect with you know, social benefit? And I just couldn't help but notice again and again that uh, so much of what holds me back personally and from my vantage point, what holds us collectively back in organizations is things that are our own processes that we need to work through. Um, this is why I find meditation and mindfulness to be so powerful at one level. Um, but in some ways, I find myself taking one step forward and two steps back in so many occasions where um, a slip up in terms of how I am in interpersonal relationships with others uh, changes the sense of trust or the sense of cohesion within a group. And all of a sudden, it takes a lot to get that back one way or the other. And these are pretty subtle things. Um, consequently, it's hard to talk about them. What I have found more and more resonance in doing nowadays is, is finding the time to speak about this. 
um, finding the time for organizations that I'm connected to to be having longer form ways of doing this work. So what may have started as a minute of silence before a meeting, which had uh, very large tangible and intangible benefits from the place we were at, has now uh, metamorphosized to group retreats or longer form retreats where people will go individually and take on uh, phrases like shadow work or vision quests where they start looking into their individual and collective subconscious and asking questions about why is it that we are the way we are? I, I'll speak for myself vulnerably so that um, I've, I've been starting to notice and learn that despite whatever quote unquote good that I may have been doing in my life, a lot of it has been driven by a personal sense of unworthiness. You know, it's because I'm not good enough that I need to keep pushing myself to try to do all this. It's because I live in a first world country living in you know, a way that feels pretty uh, unfair to me in some ways, uh, especially with a family, in, in, a lot of whom are still living in India in, in definitions of poverty that the Western world would at least appreciate. Um, and, and noticing that as uh, I see that that is part of my motivation to act in the world, I have the chance to start to change that. Um, starting to ask questions of, is it possible for me to act in the world without underlying motivations that are uh, self-deprecating or self-harming in nature or other harming in nature uh, has been very powerful for me. And as I've invited other people into that dialogue or other organizations, I have found it to be uh, quite nourishing all around. And, and I think over time, there is growth and impact as a result of it, but it gets harder and harder to measure. And so there's this underlying question of, uh, at what point do we start letting go of the uh, legacy forms of measurement that we as a culture and society have been holding on to? Yeah, and it sounds like if I were to reflect back what I'm hearing, you're really interested in this uh, group process or even businesses or organizations as a means of personal transformation. Like it seems like you're both taking in internal personal development, but sort of along the lines of reinventing organizations and Frederick Lalu, you're also interested in how groups can actually increase collective consciousness. Does that sound correct? Yeah, I mean, it, I think the language changes depending on the listener. But in effect, um, you know, there, is, there is something in relation to evolution that I'm very interested in. There is an evolution internal to myself, and there is an evolution in a collective, um, which has to do with, with, in some ways, looking at the world in a different way. Um, and in terms of how that applies to the workplace, I'm less interested about doing that on nights and weekends and more about saying, you know, what if going to work was about becoming a better person? Um, what does that mean? What does it look like? How does business change as a result of, of that kind of work? And how does the world change? So we're, we both practice mindfulness. So it gives me some calm. But what did you think when Trump was elected? <laughs> and um, how does that this sort of this, is, do you see that as flaring of the shadow in a sort of real like that is actually a good thing to be aware of? And like now people are more aware of it. Or do you see it as a horrible backsliding that actually is uh, counterproductive? H how do you how do you how have you reconciled in the last uh, few weeks or months since Trump was elected? Huh. Um so this is the first time I've been asked this question, <laughs> um, or at least from this vantage point that I stand at. So what comes up for me is uh, first just inviting the integrative mindset, which uh, from my understanding is that, look, there's many ways to look at this. 
Um, and so on one hand, can I be a collector of views? Can I start to see the multiplicity of perspectives that are available here? And can I um, grease the wheels between myself and those views such that, um, you know, much like pairs of glasses, I can swap them in and out as appropriate given the circumstance that I'm in? Um, that's one feeling that comes up. In terms of the, the raw feeling of it, it was, uh, I, I was uh, viscerally in, in pain um, upon that process, um, not necessarily from a space of judgment or wrongness, um, but it, it was a physical experience to go through. And I went through a journey of trying to understand um, what's going on here and um, discovered a spectrum of a person who votes for Trump, person who votes for Clinton, person who votes for other. Um, very hard to say there's a single thing that's going on here. And my way of, of engaging with it going forward is not necessarily wanting to take a particular view, but rather kind of looking at things at a, at a level of wanting to build and dissolve um, whatever conflict emerges with whatever person that I come across. So, so a, a doubling down of saying, uh, what if I were to seek out those who hold uh, perspectives that when I hear them, creates unpleasantness within me. And when I, when I engage with such person or people, how do I start to engage in such a way where I'm not trying to put a view on them and say, well, my view is right, yours is wrong, but rather to dissolve the, the conflict and the constriction so that what gets created is something that neither party could see beforehand. That's been more and more on the top of my mind right now. I, I don't even know if I make sense in sharing that. No, I think you did. Um, it sounds like there's a, it's like the, the sort of business philosophy of like, don't just create something incrementally better, create something that changes, that makes the old thing irrelevant. So it's almost That's like right. you're almost looking for the um, evolutionary progress to make the, uh, the old, are you Democrat or are you Republican actually an irrelevant standpoint to, to more of like a, yeah. Is that, does that I, sound right? In, in many ways, yes. I, I feel like the, the microcosm of the political question is in some ways lived every time I come across someone whose views and perspectives generate discord within myself, uh, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's in my, uh, my spousal relationship. Every time I come across something that um, I feel like I have a perspective, it's the right perspective, perhaps even the only perspective, uh, that is life asking me to see something that I just can't see in my psychology and figure out a way to take the thing that is perceived as conflict at one dimension and dissolve it within another dimension. But you know, for me to be very specific on, okay, that sounds like a platitude. What does that mean uh, in terms of an actual occurrence uh, would take longer than a 45 minute podcast. And I feel like that's part of the question for our community and society. Yeah, at Lyft, we've been really interested in this. What is the 500-year plan for the economy rather than what's the uh, Q4 2017 plan for the economy? That's right. Um, and, you know, creating replicable local living economies, you know, where it's resilient and, um, you know, less focused on multinationals, et cetera, seems a lot of people would say, oh, it's fine for you to talk about, you know, the, your sort of idealistic future, but... Uh, if we if we talk about the 500 year plan, it seems people seem to relax a little more. They're like, okay, well, if it's 500 years, I could see how that could work. You know, we want it sooner, but it's sort of if you take if you extend the time frame out and say this is what we're actually ho hoping for, it seems to reduce some of the Im immediate dismissal. So yeah, I mean, so 
there's a there's a wonderful quote that I've come across that supposedly Buddha said that I find to be uh, beautiful. Uh, part of my work in the world, as I've just mentioned to you, is about inviting and dissolving paradox. You know, how can two disparate truths simultaneously exist? How can it be yes to everything? When a mother says, you know, which child do you love more? I love both of you more. You know, that's that is wrong at one level of perception. And it can be so right at another level. So, so Buddha says, you know, if you knew how long it takes to, uh, to experience or to be in enlightenment, and of course he's got this, this worldview of reincarnation, he talks about this time horizon. He's got a word for, for how long it takes for an eagle to fly over a mountain with a piece of silk in its beak. And every time it flies over the mountain, the, the mountain disintegrates by a tiny fraction. And he says, by the time that eagle disintegrates not only that mountain, but 10 such mountains, you have your enlightenment. And then simultaneously to that, he says, and if you knew how precious every moment was, you would cultivate inner understanding as though your hair was on fire. And so he would hear these, these paradoxical statements and say, well, both can't be true. That's ridiculous. And yet, there's something that's invited in me of, whoa, you know, can I let go of time? Can I let go of a linear way of thinking as a driver of how I live, which is very alive to reflect on? I love that. You're reminding me of the story that Goinka tells about the, the piece of the scarf rolling over the mountaintop. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the last few minutes here, a few more questions. Um, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? So... This is a practice that I have with those who are dearest with me, um, and I find that I'm longing for it more expansively, but it's hard because it demands some space. Um, the vulnerability to ask, what do I not see? And I would like to ask the same question back um, so that we all can exist in this world where we acknowledge that our blind side is open um, and being our, our brother's keeper, each of us have that piece to the puzzle if we would just open ourselves up, if we considered it safe enough to be able to vulnerably ask and not feel like um, you know, we will be taken to the cleaners for doing so. I like it. And what's, is there a book that you often give as a gift? Um, not a go-to book per se, uh, depending on the, the kind of interest of, of the people that I am blessed to come across. I think the kind of direction that we've been um, exploring here, the, the books that come up for me are you know, the mixture of, of inner work and business. So you mentioned reinventing organizations, um, becoming a deliberately developmental organization. Uh, Kagan at, at Harvard wrote that, or um, Adam Grant's Give and Take. Uh, I find all be very interesting statements of, of you know, how to engage in the workplace in a way that allows me to evolve internally and, and hopefully organizationally. I'd heard of the first, I'd heard of Adam Grant, uh, but I didn't know much about that book, Give and Take, so I'll, I'll check it out. Please do. Um, what else do you need right now? How can, how can our listeners help you, or do you have any requests to the listeners for helping support your work or to help you grow this next economy? Um, I've been really inspired by this gentleman um, who lives in India, he spent a, a lifetime in service. He's 100 years old now. His name's Dada Vaswani. And he, uh, like a, a saint slash social worker, Mother Teresa type. 
Not that there's too many of those types out there. Um, and he, uh, he was asked this question, and I was privy to the answer of, you know, how can I support your work, you know, Mr. Saintly Person? And uh, his answer just elicited something out of me. He puts out his hands in a cup, and he says, I ask for your tears of compassion. And I've been sitting with that, that, um, you know, we are all doing our work in the world, and I, I say yes to all of it because it helps us in all of our journeys, and, and I think it adds up to something collectively. Um, but to the extent that each of us can touch into that part of ourselves while we're doing that work, that we can feel the teardrops of our compassion. Well, this is something that I ask of myself every day uh, as I reflect on, on my day. Did, did I touch in? Did I have a quivering heart as I engaged with the world in a sense of awe and gratefulness that it is? Um, I would I'd love to invite that of anyone who listens to this. You know, it's funny when, when you said that, I was thinking um, we should ask your wife <laughs> because that's the true test, right? <laughs> like, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> like my, uh, if if I were to say um, I'm, I've lived today with a quivering heart, and then it's like, let me ask my wife to see what she really thinks. <laughs> that would be the the that's true great. the true test, right? Well, I, I have these conversations with some dear ones here that that uh, I think of the intimate relationships as the master's thesis, right? So some folks go in and say, well, you know how how can I be nice to all these people and I can't even be nice to my spouse or my parents or my brothers? Or, um, I think of it as very much the other way around. Like We practice kindness out in the world to prepare ourselves for a master's thesis. And I would like to believe that I'm not totally failing my master's thesis, but um, I don't think of that as the, the bare minimum threshold. I think of it as the pinnacle. Uh, that's beautiful. I like that. You know, switching out that it's easier to be kind to strangers than it is to your own family. Yeah. Or even harder, I, the true test is being nice to yourself. I think That's I think that up. pinnacle keeps rising up. The, the more that we bring our own psychological baggage, our own subconscious patterning to, uh, the more we have to work through, right? And we have, in, in a lot of cases, very little of that with folks that we don't know. And so there is a, a sense of joy in engaging there in, in a way that might be less so with dear ones. So last question, how can people get in contact with you or learn more about your work? Um, Checking out the websites is a beautiful uh, opportunity. So rsfsocialfinance.org, armoniallc.org, nestleinc.org, and servicespace.org, which is the uh, volunteer organization I've been involved with for some time. Um, or uh, certainly very Googleable, and, and uh, I'm sure Ryan can pass along my email address in, uh, in a text fashion or something. I'm just... I, what I don't want is spam, you know, from uh, from bots and whatnot. But otherwise, we'll make sure that it it gets through. I don't think we have enough listeners to get bot spam. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I, I'm projecting into the popularity of, of yeah, this based on how nourished I feel right now. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.